All right, a couple of weeks ago, we started a little mini-series, a three-parter on the book of Esther. And today what we're gonna do is we're gonna focus on the middle section. This is chapters three to five of the book, and then we'll finish it up next week. And if you're familiar with the story, we're looking at the book of Esther from a perspective that might be a little bit different than one that you learned or have heard before, especially if you grew up Christian. And if you're not familiar with the story, don't worry, I'm going to tell a shortened version of it here in just a moment. But the approach that we're taking is one that I've been learning about from Jewish scholars. I've been thinking about the story of Esther as a comedy. And the word that surprised me when it was used in some of the Jewish commentator uh, books was burlesque. Esther is burlesque. Now at its core, burlesque genre is just an absurd, exaggerated, tawdry comedy. And I know sometimes we, you know, we associate it with sensuality, but it doesn't have to be that. Burlesque is just an over-the-top, ridiculous melodrama. And so in that way, the book of Esther is more akin to something like Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, or like a Greek farce, than it is to like a historical recording of events. Right? Some books of the Bible do seem to be written with the intention of recording actual historical events. You know, you've got the Torah, and the Kings, and the Chronicles, and the Gospels. But Esther doesn't seem to be one of those. So with that framework, I'm going to tell the first two-thirds of the story, and I'm just going to tell it as a storyteller. This will be a little bit of an experiment, so give me feedback if you would like. And I want to see what we're going to get from it, and then we'll go in and, and look at it a little bit more carefully. So once upon a time, there was a king who ruled the land from Persia over in the east all the way down to Ethiopia. And this king was corrupt, but this corrupt king also had a little bit of naivete about him. He was a bit brainless. We might be able to think of such. <laughs> and what he seemed to most enjoy was lavishly displaying his wealth for everyone to see. Throwing parties and buying big buildings and coating his quarters with gold, things like that. And at one of this king's grand parties, where he was drunk with all of the men, the king commanded the queen, his wife, to leave her somewhat tame banquet that she was having with the other women. And he wanted her to come and parade before him and all of the drunken men wearing her crown. And probably the ask was that she would wear only her crown. And so that queen wisely says, no, to that request. Right there I was like, man, hashtag Queen Vashti is awesome. <laughs> so this brainless king, he surrounded himself with some not so brainless advisors who were evil to the core of their beings and they were more than willing to use this king as a puppet to further their own agendas. And so after this queen refuses to parade before the king and all of his drunken friends, these corrupt advisors tell the king, why don't you just be rid of the queen? She's not going to do your bidding. Find another woman to marry. And this king is himself a man who's easily persuaded by others, and so he thinks, okay, this is a good idea. So he goes and he starts what I would call an ancient Persian version Right? We're in the Persian Empire here, an ancient Persian version of The Bachelor, like the TV show, starring himself as The Bachelor. 
He wants to find a new queen. Only this king doesn't just have a house of like 20 or 30 or whatever it is, one woman who are trying to win his affections. But he asks that all of the pretty preteens of all of the land, all the way from what would now be like Iran down to Ethiopia, would come to his harem and be bathed for an entire year in oil so that he can decide who he wants to marry, right? Who he's going to give that final rose to. Now, this is grandiose storytelling. We talked about this a little bit in the first week, how even for a powerful king of that era, asking for all of the pretty ladies to come and live at the palace so you can bathe them in myrrh for an entire year is outlandish. Right? So it's a little bit of a mockery of the extravagance of the upper class. It's like, look how ridiculous they are. So while this corrupt and brainless king is busy being the bachelor, one of his evil and not so brainless advisors is making plans for genocide. And this man's name is Haman, and he is the most villainy villain in the story. Haman the villain loved power, and he loved it when people showed him public honor. And so one day, as Haman is walking to the gate of the king's palace, I'm going to try and get some more steps on my Fitbit here. <laughs> he passes by Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jewish man, and he is sitting there, and the, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman as he passes. And this enrages Haman. He's so mad that Mordecai won't bow down to him, so he goes into the king, and he asks the king to kill all of the Jewish people in all of the Persian Empire in re retaliation for Mordecai's slight. Right? He's like, if one Jewish person won't bow to me, then they will all die. And in fact, he told the king he would make a sizable donation to the palace coffers in exchange for a decree of genocide. So meanwhile, back at the bachelor mansion, this king has been completely captivated by one of the young women who's competing to be the queen, and her name is Esther. And so he married her, and he made her the queen over the entire empire, but he's been a little bit distracted, you know, by his television appearances. And he's easily influenced by his peers, and this king loves money, and so this king agrees to Haman's request to have all of the Jewish people and all of the empire put to death in exchange for a donation to the imperial treasure chests. But what the king doesn't know is that Esther's cousin is the man who refused to bow to the villain. Right? Esther's cousin is the Jewish man, Mordecai, which also makes Esther... Jewish. And when Mordecai learns that all of the Jewish people are to be executed by order of the king because he refused to bow down to Haman the villain, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and then he took ash and he covered his body from head to foot with ashes. Now tearing your clothing and putting on sackcloth and covering your body with ashes is a typical sign of mourning in that time and place. But for Mordecai, it was more than simply showing sadness. It was a public protest. Right? It was a public protest of an unjust decree that Mordecai wants to draw attention to. And I think that in, the part, in this part of Esther, this is the least comic scene. You know, it's kind of like, you know, like when you have a trilogy, the middle one is always kind of the darkest, like the Empire Strikes Back. This is the least comic scene as Mordecai starts wandering through the city and he's crying loudly and bitterly and he's got sackcloth and he's doing this theatrical grief, 
right? It's performative and it's displayed through this public ritual and public action. So people naturally started talking about Mordecai and soon his behavior had reached its way all the way up to Queen Esther. And so Mordecai being her cousin, in fact, he was the man that raised her. She was an orphan. She's deeply concerned. And in fact, the Hebrew word there translates as writhing in fear. So Esther writhed in fear, if you can imagine what that might look like. And you remember that she's probably 14, 15 years old, if that. And she knows Mordecai, and she knows that this means that something terrible is happening. So when Esther learns exactly why Mordecai is behaving this way, she sends a messenger to him outlining a plan. And she says, okay, cousin, everyone knows that if a man or a woman enters the presence of the king without being summoned, they're put to death. And in fact, the only thing that will keep them from being put to death is if the king has mercy on them and he extends his golden scepter That indicates to the guards that that person can live. Look, I haven't been summoned to the king for more than 30 days. And it's like she's saying, but this is my plan. And she's like, I just want you to know that when I do this, I will be risking my life. And so Mordecai sends a reply back to her and he says, okay, if you risk your life to plead for your people, you'll have a shot at living. But if you don't take the risk at all, you will for sure die, as will all of us. And who knows, perhaps you've been strategically placed in a palace for such a time as this. And so Esther sends a response and she says, okay, have our people fast and pray, and if I die, then I die. So three days later, Esther puts on her best royal attire, she puts on like her good business suit, and she approaches the king's court. You imagine she's nervous, But we're told the king looks out and he sees her even before she comes in and his heart is soft. And so as she comes in, he puts out his golden scepter to spare her life. Now, on the way to church, I told Rachel, I said, I wish I had my niece's, she has this baton with all these sparkles in it that I could use as the golden scepter. But you know, as fate would have it, Ken gave me a little present this morning. I don't know if you've seen, he carries around a little man purse. It's so cute. It's this little tiny thing that carries like, you know, his credit cards and stuff. And he's got a tiny pen and he loves his pen. And he's like, Emily, I bought you one of these. It's a space pen. So you can write upside down. And I was like, this is so great. This can be not only my scepter, but, you know, should I ever need a different career, I can use it for space force. (laughs) Rachel says, no, it's my space force pen. So the king extends the scepter. It's a beautiful scepter, isn't it? (laughs) And so the queen is able to live. (laughs) He does seem to really adore Esther. And so he looks at her and he smiles and he says, you know, what do you want? I'll give you anything, up to half of my kingdom. You just have to ask me. And so Esther looks at him and she says, you know, what I really want is I just want to have dinner with you and with your advisor, Haman. I just want to have dinner, the three of us. And so the king says, all right, sure, how about tonight? So she goes to the palace and they eat and they drink wine and Haman's ego is stoked. He's feeling special, you know, he's having dinner with the king and with the queen. So as they're enjoying the evening, the king looks at Esther and he again asks her, he says, what do you want? I'll give you anything, up to half of my kingdom. I'm so magnanimous. 
And she says, okay, well, I, I just want to have dinner with you and with Haman, the villain, tomorrow night. <laughs> and the king says, all right, sure. Now, this delay asking the king for what she really wants, it probably is like a plot device, you know, because this would have been acted out or read aloud. And it helps build the tension in the story. And it gives the storyteller time to remind the audience just why Haman is so awful. Right? So because as Haman the villain is leaving that night, we're told that he's happy and he's lighthearted and he's walking through the palace and he's proud of his station in life. And he's feeling good until, that is, he passes again by Mordecai outside the palace gate. And again, Mordecai doesn't rise and doesn't bow to him. And once again, Haman is filled with rage, right? His pride inside of him is just, I've just been dining with the king and queen. Don't I deserve to be respected? Who is this man? So Haman goes home and he's a little angry, but he's still a little proud and he's feeling braggadocious. So he gathers his wife and his friends and he tells them how honored he is by the king and how the king treats him as more special than any of the other advisors, right? He thinks I'm a swell guy. I'm stupendous. But all of that means nothing to me. It's a little like, you know, Gollum when Gollum has two sides. Like, oh, the king thinks I'm great, but my precious... All of that means nothing to me when I pass by Mordecai, that insubordinate man. Who does he think he is? And then Haman's wife, who's had to live with this guy, she leans right into his hatred and she suggests to him, well, why don't we just build a 75-foot pole on which we can impale Mordecai's head for everybody to see? And that's what they did. They constructed a 75-foot pole that they sharpened on the end like a pencil and they raised it up that night. Right, so the second act of the story does take a particularly dark turn. Right? There's something sinister here. But it's also, in addition to being the lowest part of the story, it's probably the most instructive. Now, you would think that this would go without saying. But given our current circumstances, I think it's helpful for faith communities to talk about how to spot what corrupts the human spirit. Right? There's many things that can do it, but th this is one of those instructive stories. The king and Haman represent two different kinds of corrupt. They're both corrupt, but they're corrupt in different ways. Right? This king, he loves himself. He's utterly impressed by his own wealth. He makes gluttonous displays of money. He'd be the guy with like 20 Lamborghinis. He throws year-long parties. He enjoys exercising power over women. You know, he asks inappropriate things of his first wife, and then later he becomes enraptured by thousands of young would-be suitors or lovers who have absolutely no power over their situation. This king isn't very thoughtful about the way that he rules. He doesn't seem to take his responsibility that seriously. He's so easily persuaded. He carelessly issues decrees of genocide. And he's able to be bought. You know, just give me money. I'll pass that measure. I'll kill whoever you want me to kill. Haman, on the other hand, he's a little more calculating and ruthless, isn't he? He has no empathy for anyone. I mean, I don't think the king does either, but Haman definitely doesn't. And he's so entitled to power and prestige that he just gets mad when he perceives someone disrespecting him. He even gets murderous. And he used his wealth as a weapon, right? He used his wealth to convince the king that all the Jewish people should be put to death, right? I'll enrich your coffers if you do this for me. So he's using money as a means of control. And the story is saying, beware, right? Beware of such humans. 
Don't be enamored by them. Don't be impressed by them. Don't even be intimidated by them because their due is coming. And we're not talking just about kings and rulers, but just humans generally. You know, people who lead, we just have the capacity maybe to do greater harm and to do it more publicly. You know, beware the boyfriend or girlfriend or partner or spouse who expects to get their way all the time and becomes deeply enraged when they don't. Beware the boss who makes inappropriate requests of you or your colleagues. You know, when I interned at the Indiana State House right after college, I was, in, I was interning in their media department, and there was this one representative whose name I remember and where he's from, but I will not say it, but he consistently invited all of the young female interns to have lunch with him at Hooters. Probably a little inappropriate for a married man in his 40s with young children. But some of the interns went because either they felt flattered by the attention or else they really wanted to build networks for a future job. And I have this vivid memory of walking behind him and he had uh, two of my female, we're talking, we were like 20, colleagues on either side of him with his arms around both of them just parading down the second floor of the Indiana State House past the House Chambers. And I thought, beware that man. Beware of the person who makes sizable donations to the nonprofit you run, but then expects an outsized voice in the direction of the organization. Beware of the person who shrewdly calculates how they can get promoted and doesn't care who they step on in the process, or who feels victimized every time they don't get the promotion they want. And beware of the person who can't show off their money enough. Now, money in and of itself is not bad. Money can be used very well to bless others. I think money is great for building relationships. Jesus says the love of money is the root of all evil. And I think this story, you know, Jesus was absolutely enmeshed in the Jewish tradition. He was a Jewish man. This story helps us answer that question. What does it look like when someone loves money? Right, so it's a comedy that helps us in an exaggerated form identify some of those signs, not only in others, but also in ourselves. You know, what is it that we watch out for ourselves? It doesn't feel so exaggerated sometimes either at this point, but on the other end of the spectrum here, Esther and Mordecai are providing the counterpoint to the king and to Haman. Right? They're showing us what it means to lead with integrity and even more broadly, how to respond when life puts us in tough, tough positions. Right? So when Esther and Mordecai, when they learn about this decree stating that all the Jewish people are to be put to death, that's the first thing they do. They mourn. Esther writhes in fear. Mordecai tears his clothes. Right? This is an appropriate emotion to hearing about the impending suffering of fellow humans. Right? They're sad and they grieve it. And I think our culture mourns very poorly. Right? American culture mourns very poorly. When someone is sick, when someone passes away, we give people very little time off. Like, what is it, five days? Three days? I mean, that's just... And we don't have much by way of public support for mourners, right? In some cultures, people wear black for an entire year to signify a significant loss. And that indicates to other people, like, look, I'm just not quite myself, because how could you be? It might take even longer than that. 
And in some cultures, funerals elicit public wailing in the streets. You know, some Middle Eastern cultures do that. When I lived in China, I lived out in the western part, so I won't say this is true of like all of China, but where I lived in Xining, everyone lives in apartment buildings. And I started noticing that occasionally there'd be these tents just in the middle of the apartment complex, out in the public spaces, giant tents with big wreaths of flowers. And I was told that those were for funerals. And so people would set off firecrackers, like those really, really loud, giant wheels of them. And that's to ward off evil spirits. And for days, there would be people coming and going and the body would be displayed. And some of that was because it was a way um, to just have more public rituals of the morning, which is different than it is here in the U.S. And this is what we're seeing with Mordecai, right? He's responding to this devastating news by indicating his pain through like really public ritual. We also don't have very many rituals for ourselves when we're mourning loss of something other than the death of a person, right? And there are a lot of things in our lives that need mourning. Breakups, divorces, the losses of friendship, a friend moving away, a job loss. Maybe you've got a kid going off to college or a kid who just took a job in another state and you're having to say goodbye to them. A child with whom your relationship is disrupted. I was thinking particularly of some of the serendipity doodah moms give a shout out to them. Those are the moms of LGBTQ kids who are often in um, more conservative churches and they join us online. I was thinking, I know some of you have had your relationship with your child or your family disrupted and certainly your church. And I was going to say, I found it personally helpful during a time of loss or transition to do something physical on my own to mark that loss. So one of the things that I've done is sometimes I'll set up candles And I'll just light the candle. And if it's something that's like too hard to pray about or too hard to name or something that's been ongoing, I just light the candle and I let the candle signify whatever it is that loss is. And I just, it's kind of like just saying, okay, here, God, this is this. It's not going away. Just let this candle represent my loss or my pain while I can't find the words. You know, just pay attention to this. And sometimes I'll light it for the same day over a period of time. Sometimes you might want to do it every day. But I think incorporating some kind of physical ritual can be helpful. Plant a tree. Plant a flower. Because grieving is the first step to acknowledging that something is wrong. And if you can't think of anything right now, maybe just tuck that in your pocket for later. And then after mourning, we need wisdom. And what I love about the story of Esther is that you've got this young woman who has very little social or political power, but she's strategic and she's brave. And she needed wisdom. She needed it quickly. She came up with a plan. Her gut was great. It was a great plan. Um, And it was a plan that worked. And I think that we're going to do a sermon series on becoming wise. I haven't chatted about that with Ken yet, but I've got a little one brewing for maybe this winter, you know, how can we grow in this area of how do you become wise so that you can trust your instincts? I was hoping, I was kind of looking around, I was hoping there were a few more young women that would be here today, a couple of the younger girls, because I think this is a really important story for some of our middle school, high school, and even college age women, because as a general rule, women are told not to take up space. Women are just as corruptible as men. We are absolutely as corruptible. But in our culture, we're told not to take up too much space and we're punished for exercising 
power, and we often feel self-conscious when we do exercise power, even when it's appropriate. But here, we've got Esther, this young preteen, who appropriately exercises power and fills her leadership role. And I thought, man, in the ancient world, or even not in the ancient world, you don't see that many stories of like teenage girls out-strategizing a royal advisor, you know, or like a presidential advisor for the good of the empire. Like, what a beautiful story for young women in our tradition. And Mordecai, to his credit, he backs her plan, and he's like, okay, with your plan, we got a chance. Without it, we're toast. And in fact, he even goes so far as to say, Esther, you may have been strategically placed here for such a time as this. So he chooses to see her as divinely appointed and inspired. And I think this is a good reminder to us that wisdom can come from the young. Right? The wisdom can come from maybe unexpected sources. Now, I don't personally believe that all of our steps are ordained. You know, I don't think that history is following like a set plan. But I do believe that there's a spirit of love that guides us and who can at times help us you know, be placed in situations or orchestrate different situations. I know there have been times in my life, and maybe you can think of some in yours as well, where you felt like I was maybe placed here for a reason. Or maybe I was here and God was able to use me for his purposes or her purposes in this situation. Now Esther, you know, after seeking wisdom, she had to have the courage to act. And so sometimes it takes us a little bit of time to seek some wisdom before we act, um, to move forward in a given situation. But, you know, the courage is vulnerable. I wanted to share a little bit of a story um, just to wrap up here. Some of you know Rachel and I play tennis. And she's a little bit better at it than I am. She wins more often than I win. But earlier this summer, I found that um, I was losing more than I wanted to and by a wider margin than I would like to be losing. (laughs) I blame the concussion, but... You know, so I was like, man, I just got to figure out what I need to do. You know, I, I don't consider myself like an athlete, but I'm, you know, I'm casually athletic. <laughs> and so I'm trying to figure it out. And then I realized, I was like, oh, okay, I think I know what's going on. Rachel gets me to, I'm going to get more steps here. She gets me to like run up to the net. You know, if you hit it really short, you force your opponent to go right up to the net. And then I'm stuck at the net and I'm short. So if she hits it back, like, this is, my, this is my range. So I was like, oh, man, when she hits it up there, I got to, like, immediately, like, do a little scoot back. Extra steps. <laughs> okay, and so I started paying attention to that, and I started hustling it back, and that helped my game. And then I was also, I overhit quite a bit. Probably I'm excitable, as Rachel calls me, an emotional player. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about, Paul. (laughs) So I was consistently kind of hitting a ball like this far past the line. So I had to do a little adjustment. And I've been playing tennis since I was little. And it is hard if you have a a habit like that to kind of make that little adjustment. And it's vulnerable. It sounds ridiculous, but I'm like, I trust my my tits. And it feels a little vulnerable to change it. I did it last night when it was deuce and it did not serve me well. I, w- I will say this. She won 6-4 on the say yesterday and then I won 6-4 and then we decided we were hungry. <laughs> so I, I felt like I was doing a little bit better. 
So maybe not the best analogy, but I was thinking, you know, it's like you need wisdom, but then it actually takes some courage and some vulnerability to enact that. And I try to imagine Esther, what it would feel like to be that young, to walk up to the court of the king, knowing that your very life and the life of so many other people are also on the balance and that we have to be vulnerable. That when we have a tricky situation, the next step is that vulnerable conversation. Or if it's something at work, it might be a vulnerable step, like putting in your notice. And that vulnerability is part and parcel of living courageously. So next week, I'm going to look at how that story wraps up. It does get a little more comic at the end, you know. This was sort of the serious middle part, but we will wrap up Esther. And then the week after, Andy Deeb, our very own Andy Deeb, is going to be speaking. Andy's been out at San Francisco Theological Seminary, and he may also give his take on Esther. All right, let's go into a time of meditation here. So if you're new, we often take, oh, two to three minutes of either just silence together before God or for guided meditation. And today I'm going to do just a little bit of guidance as we go through. So let's start by getting comfortable and taking a couple of deep breaths. Spirit of love, we know that you're here. We ask that you would be just especially tangible to us in this time and place. I'd like you to start by imagining a place that makes you feel peaceful. Indoors, outdoors, whatever it is, and imagine what it looks like and smells like and just look around for a little while. And in that space, there's a way to walk forward. Imagine yourself walking forward, looking around as you do. And then up ahead, you see that there's a low altar And on that altar is a candle. Let's walk forward toward that altar and sit down. candle represents something we're going to lay before Jesus. Whether it's a a transition happening in our life, something particularly painful, or if you can't think of something like that, something that's bringing you joy. But name something that candle represents. I spend some time just looking like what the candle looks like. What color is it?
imagine lighting that candle and offering it as a prayer before the spirit of love. Let's imagine that Jesus comes walking toward us and sits on the other side of that little altar so that he's facing us across from the candle. Let's just spend about a minute in silence just sitting there holding whatever that is, that person, that transition, that event before Jesus in silence. still imagining. Just picture us all here in this actual space with our candles before God. And I pray, Jesus, it's sometimes difficult to even believe that you care sometimes about these things that are going on in our lives, the minutiae but we're willing to have faith and to trust that you do turn your face toward our cares and that you do care for us. And so, Lord, we make this as a prayer offering before you. And we thank you that you are with us in our grief and that you're with us in our transitions and you're with us in our joy. And Jesus, I ask that you would just breathe on all of these people and all of this, these situations we're offering before you and particularly in this coming week, Lord. May we all feel embraced in your love. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for your kindness and for your gentleness with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.